the future of commercial space in low Earth orbit. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Commercial space company Axiom says it's learning from its first all-private mission to the International Space Station last month and planning more commercial missions to low Earth orbit. The company launched four people to the station last month from Kennedy Space Center on SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule. Axiom is planning to build its own space station, first starting with elements attached to the ISS. Rex Walheim is a former NASA astronaut who flew on the final space shuttle mission. He now works at Axiom and says the team is taking what they learned from that first mission and applying it to future flights. So the way to have that smooth operation when our station elements arrive is to practice that now with our private astronaut missions, and that's exactly what we did. We, we learned to, to work together, and we learned everybody's strengths and maybe some weaknesses and how we can improve, and that will help us as we go forward and, and build our own space station. NASA says operations of the ISS will come to an end in 2030 and plans to leverage private stations for future science research. Axiom plans to begin launching its own modules to the ISS, which will eventually separate from the station in 2024. We'll hear from Walheim about Axiom's plans for the future and what it's learning from this first commercial space flight. Then, SpaceX founder Elon Musk is buying the social media platform Twitter. What could this mean for Musk's space company? We'll speak with Quartz business reporter Tim Fernholtz about the implications of the buy. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. More than a decade ago, Rex Walheim helped NASA close a chapter of space exploration. All three engines up and burning. Two, one, zero, and liftoff, the final liftoff of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. Walheim was on board that final space shuttle mission, launching on space shuttle Atlantis in 2011. Now he's part of a commercial company ushering in a new chapter of space exploration, Axiom. Walheim, who is now Chief of Safety and Mission Assurance at Axiom, joins us now to talk about this new era of spaceflight. Yeah, I think it is an inflection point. Uh, you know, it was a, a big change when I landed on STS-135. You know, the loss of the shuttle program, you know, was, we, we knew it was coming, um, but it was hard to take, you know, for a lot of people. A lot of people lost their jobs, and uh, there wasn't a lot necessarily going on yet in the commercial sector. And over that period of time, uh, we've seen it grow and grow. Yeah. From NASA side and the commercial side, you know, we saw the Exploration Flight Test 1 um, flown out of the Kennedy Space Center, and that was exciting for the exploration program. And then we started seeing the commercial, car- you know, more of the commercial cargo flights, and then finally the commercial crew flights uh, just, uh, you know, about a couple years ago. And so it's exciting to, to see that really pick up from, from just NASA commercial crews to uh, actual, you know, uh, civilian commercial crews like Axiom 1, Axiom 1 flight. And to see that really taken off is, is really exciting. It, and just, you know, all that's going on in space right now, it, it's just amazing that it's so busy, you know, and that was part of the, the complications or the difficulties, I would say, or the challenges of, of AX-1 was just fitting our flight in with everything else that was going on in the space station. Mm-hmm. You kind of alluded to this, you know, when the space shuttle program did end, I mean, we knew that it was ending before your, your final flight um, and there was a brief period of time where, where there was not much going on and, um, you know, obviously a lot of things going on behind the scenes. But it seems like in this 10 years, especially these past three or four years, things are just moving at a rapid pace. I mean, what's driving this this development um, to have something like this happen relatively quickly? 
I think it's just the ongoing commercialization of space. We've reached a point where that can really accelerate. Now that we have uh, crew vehicles that can go to and from the space station, we have the SpaceX vehicle and pretty soon, hopefully, the Boeing vehicle. And, uh, and we also have some of the suborbital vehicles that are going up and down, too, that are, are generating excitement. So I think just the commercialization of, of a low-Earth orbit and even sub, uh, suborbital space is, is really taken off. It, it's allowed people to really participate and get excited about, about the space program. And I think, uh, you know, there are things that the commercial sector can do quicker than the government can. The government has to pave the ways, you know, pave the way. So they, the government's really good at true exploration, you know, uh, figuring out ways to get to the moon or go beyond the moon. Um, and then once, you know, a, a sector is opened up to the commercial, commercial side of the house, then uh, the commercial side can take over. So Low Earth Orbit, we've been doing that, you know, for over 50 years now. And so now the commercial sector is kind of really fill, backfilling where NASA can, can kind of pull away and, and, and let us do the job. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned you were here in Florida. Um, I assume you're here to watch the launch. Were you, were you a bit jealous seeing that crew uh, <laughs> head up to the space station? Well, you know, it was really a, it was really a special day for me because the launch date, April eighth, was exactly to the day twenty years from my very first flight on STS one ten. Um, so it was really fun to, to to look out at the crew what they were doing and thinking back what I was doing twenty years ago that day and how it felt to you know be going to the launch pad for the first time. Um, and the other exciting thing about the launch was to look over. I actually launched on on pad 39B on on STS-110, so that pad is now taken up by the SLS rocket. So to see this enormous moon rocket on pad B, and then to see our uh, our Falcon 9 and, and Crew Dragon on pad A was just spectacular. It's like, and and it really did highlight to me how much things have changed over the last 10, 11 years, and how things have really taken off. This is what it was supposed to be like. So it's really exciting to see it come to pass. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a bit about. That. That change, Rex. Um, you know, training for for a NASA mission for for one of your space shuttle missions, um, I would assume is is wildly different than what a commercial astronaut would would do for training. And and as you know, chief of safety and mission assurance at, at Axiom, um, what have you taken from the way that NASA trains their astronauts and the programs and the, the safety considerations you put in for your your commercial spaceflight astronauts? What's the same and what's different? Well, the same is we want to make sure the the crews can operate the vehicle properly and safely and effectively. And uh, with the space shuttle, that wasn't that easy. You know, the space shuttle was built, you know, in the 70s and came online in the 80s. And so it was very old technology, very labor-intensive and operator-intensive. And so we had to know, you know, just about everything about the shuttle that that affected our flight. And so we had to know all the systems. We had to know how the failures affected each other, and they were all interrelated. And it required a lot of uh, a lot of manual input, and so to do that, we had to be really good at it and practice over and over and over. You know, so it was you know nine months to a year of a fairly intensive training program. Uh, now, with the new vehicles like the uh, like the SpaceX Dragon vehicle, they are are a tremendous leap in automation. They've made things so much easier. Um, the one thing that where it really strikes me is what we, we used to call post insertion in the shuttle program. Post insertion, you get it get onto orbit, and then in, uh, in the shuttle, we would just have to go to work really quick, taking down the seats, you know, putting up a bunch of laptop computers to kind of bring the, the shuttle into the into the 20th century. And, and uh, 
uh, 21st century. And so um, it, it was a lot of work to string up those computers and get everything going and get everything put away with with SpaceX with that vehicle. It's so well it's so well integrated that you, you, they basically just get to orbit, get out of their get out of their seats, and and they're ready to go. Um, so it's really pretty impressive the amount of automation uh, that they have done, and as, as well as it with the with the operation of the vehicle. A lot of the burns are automated, and uh, it can it can dock autonomously. That's that's training you don't have to do. So from a certain perspective, it's a function of just how automated and advanced new vehicles are. Um, and then what we do from the commercial sector is, you know, we have we have taken these vehicles that NASA has certified for commercial crew for their NASA astronauts, and we've accepted, you know, what the work that they've done. And then we kind of try to look at the margins at, at what has what has changed from the. Uh, from the commercial crew vehicles, has, Na- has uh, SpaceX made any changes to the to the baseline that, that NASA is flying? If they have, we'd like to you know, hear about some of those. And uh, and we don't have the the army here at Axiom in, in, to you know that NASA has. NASA is great because bringing on a new vehicle, they have an army that can go over you know with a fine tooth comb, make sure everything is safe to operate and safe to be on. And once they've done that, that allows us to take a smaller group of people and and look at the changes that may have been made, and to to go, to do um, to, you know to to take a look at uh, issues that would affect us. But we like I say, we don't we don't have a huge range of issues to go over because NASA has done most of that for us. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting point, and 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 I kind of want to prod a bit more into that. Like you know, the assumption is that with commercial space. Um, you know, it, it operates kind of either separately or in parallel with NASA. But but the way you're saying is you you lean on NASA, you know, quite hard for for some of these safety things and mission assurance things, right? I mean, w- without NASA, would there not be an AX1 mission? It, it, there there wouldn't be as quickly as we've seen it. Obviously, you know, and it wouldn't be. We, I don't know how we would do it. You know, with with such a, a lean crew, we have to have a lean crew. Um, if we had to certify the whole vehicle from from scratch, it would take. We would have basically had to have hired, you know, the 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 dozens or hundreds of people that NASA has you know, looking at all these issues and and do the same due diligence to to look over everything. So it would have been uh, it would have been very difficult. So I don't know how we would have done it if it hadn't been for NASA certifying the vehicle. Mm-hmm. When you compare shuttle missions to um these these SpaceX uh, Crew Dragon missions in in terms of risk, um, what what has changed since the space shuttle days and 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 the risk of of um, you know something happening with Crew Dragon? Sure. Well, a big part of the risk is is flying a new vehicle. You know, you don't know what you don't know yet. Um, but the nice thing about uh, about flying on a Dragon and a Falcon Nine is the Falcon Nine's flown many times now. You know, with the cargo missions and uh, and we've flown a few times with the crew missions too. So uh, you know, once we get comfortable with the booster, um, that that's very helpful. And then once we get comfortable with the, the Dragon capsule, you know, we we've we've seen it fly. We've and we've um, we've looked over the systems. And we understand it better. You know, we get more comfortable with it. But the uh, the newness is is one area you're concerned with. Now the nice thing about uh, the Dragon vehicle and the the Boeing vehicle is that the capsule is on the top of the rocket. One of the fundamental uh, design issues of the space shuttle was that it was on the side of the uh, side of the stack, and so if anything happened to the stack, the external tank or the solid rocket boosters, in powered flight there was really no way to get off of that uh, of that stack to avoid a you know catastrophic situation. With the uh, Dragon and the Boeing vehicles, you're on top of the rocket. So if something happens to the rocket below you during powered flight, you have an escape system. You can get away from the rocket and, and land safely in the ocean. Um, so that's going back to somewhat of the, the Apollo era, how they did it. They were smart back then. They knew some some really smart ways of doing business. And, and I think uh, the commercial sector picked up on that and said, yeah, you know, 
it would be safer if we have that assured abort capability throughout ascent. And that I think that really is a, a benefit to flying on these new vehicles. Rex, let's talk about moving forward. Um, obviously, this isn't the last uh, human mission that, that Axiom will launch, and, and there are some big plans to put a commercial space station in orbit. Let, let me let me ask you first in the short term, uh, what are you taking from AX-1, uh, and what are you looking at to apply to these future missions, and then how will that kind of lay the groundwork for a commercial space station in the coming years? Well, I think the, the first thing it did was, you know, it it established that partnership between both SpaceX and NASA. And, you know, there were growing pains. It's the first time we've did it. And, you know, I, I look back on and marvel how well everything went. And when, when we're talking about doing this, you think, boy, there's a lot of stuff that has to be done. You know, all these payloads we want to fly. You know, we really wanted to have do serious research on this mission. And that was to the credit of our AX-1 crew members. Our, they decided they wanted to really, you know, advance advance the research of, of spaceflight and to do meaningful work. And they did. But to do that, you have to you have to uh, get all your payloads approved by the safety process and, and make sure everything's okay. And um, that is a, is a big effort. And to do it for the first time, you go through all those growing pains. And, and we did that. And we formed a good partnership with uh, SpaceX and NASA and got all those things uh, all those things uh, approved. And so part of it is, is, is learning to work together as a team. And that's one of the big reasons for these, uh, these private astronaut missions is we want to get to work with NASA while we're on the space station and, and, and be a member of the team. Because, um, you know, we, we want, it's, it's not too long before we're going to have our own space station in orbit, you know, so we're going we're gonna to launch our space station and start launching our modules hopefully in the 2024 time frame. And when we get our modules up on the space station, you know, we're going to be working full-time with, uh, with NASA because we're going to be up there permanently manning our station for the most part. And when we do that, uh, we need to know their processes and how to work together and, and have a smooth, a smooth operation. So the way to have that smooth operation when our station elements arrive is to practice that now with our private astronaut missions, and that's exactly what we did. We, we learned to, to work together, and we learned everybody's strengths and maybe some weaknesses and how we can improve. And, uh, and that will help us as we go forward and, and build our own space station. And then the ultimate goal with our space station, we're building off of the International Space Station. We're bringing our first module, the HAB-1 module, and attaching it to the front of the International Space Station. And then we'll build off that. And once we complete our space station and it's time to deorbit de- the uh, ISS when it's run out of its useful life, um, we will detach and then we will become a free-flying space station. And then NASA will be our guests on our space station. So it will be great for us to learn to work with them and them to work with us because eventually the roles will be reversed and you know we'll be the owners of the space station and they'll be our guests, which we'll be glad to have there. And finally, Rex, um, any chance you will be getting back up there, whether to the International Space Station or to uh, the Axiom Space Station? It would be a possibility, but uh, you know, I think I'm happy right now just doing my, my job with, uh, with safety and, and, and helping out with the ops. It's, it's an exciting time, and I'm enjoying that right now. That was Rex Walheim, a former NASA astronaut and now Chief of Safety and Mission Assurance at Axiom. Still to come, what does Elon Musk's Twitter buy mean for SpaceX? Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. It was the big story last week. Elon Musk announced a plan to spend some $44 billion to purchase the social media platform Twitter. So what might this mean for Musk's other business ventures like SpaceX? To find out, we reached out to Tim Fernholtz. He's a reporter covering space business for Quartz. Tim, welcome back to the show. 
It is a pleasure to speak with you again. So before we talk about Elon's Twitter purchase, I want to first ask you a bit about the commercial space economy. Um, earlier in the show, we heard from, from Rex, Wall, Rex Walheim. He's a former NASA astronaut. He's now with Axiom Space. Um, they had a, a pretty big mission last month. When it, when it comes to Axiom Space, what is its place in this kind of broader space economy that's developing right now? Well, Axiom is a, a very, I think, unique business because it combines a lot of uh, traditional NASA uh, know-how and experience, particularly in its leadership team. Uh, people like Michael Suffredini and Cam Gatharian, who have been involved in the International Space Station for decades now. Uh, but it is also adopting the new, uh, the new space, if you want in quotes, business model of trying to attract private sector investment and private sector customers. And they've really had a nice uh, sweet spot with NASA's goal of creating a new fleet of free-flying space habitats in low Earth orbit for when the ISS is decommissioned eventually. Um, and it's exciting for a lot of reasons. The first all-private mission to the International Space Station, privately owned spacecraft, privately operated spacecraft, privately funded, private citizens on board as passengers. It was a proof of concept in a lot of ways. For Axiom, what it meant was essentially a lot of revenue uh, that will help fund its business operations, a lot of good publicity, and a good record of working closely with NASA to do all the things you have to do in orbit, whether it's proximity operations in the spacecraft at the station, or it's living and working and scheduling, you know, all of the passengers with astronauts on the station, all of these things that you will have to do in the future if you want more private activity in space, Axiom has demonstrated they are capable of doing that. And in dealing with some uncertainty, we saw the delay of the splashdown due to weather issues. And it seems like, uh, you know, NASA and Axiom had planned for that possibility and, and handled it very well. Tim, you wrote a piece around the launch of Axiom 1 headlined, Axiom 1 mission is a giant leap in orbital real estate. Um, how is this opening up the low Earth orbit real estate market? So NASA's hope is that by the time the ISS is retired in 2028, 2030, perhaps more likely, private companies are going to step up to operate habitats in low Earth orbit so that NASA can go do the research it wants to do. Um, while directing more of its resources to stuff like going to the moon, which sounds great in theory. Uh, but you need to come up with a business model so that works, so that private companies actually do build these habitats and they don't go bankrupt doing it. Um, as recently as 2017, there was a big government study trying to figure out, can a private company sustain a habitat like this? It was pretty skeptical um, that they would be able to break even. Obviously, Axiom is bullish. They think they can do it. Um, the next thing that we're going to see from them is the installation of a module onto the International Space Station that will be privately operated and owned. But it'll benefit the station. It'll have an additional docking port, and they'll be able to start doing more. But, but what the Axiom mission is important for is proving that there is a business model, that hypothetically you can charge people money to fly them into space and have them do stuff there and bring them back down. And that is going to get the ball rolling for all kinds of investment. And Axiom isn't the only company that's trying to do this. NanoRacks, which is a major player of the ISS, has its own plans. Blue Origin is developing its own free-flying orbital station called Orbital Reef. 
Uh, and all of these companies basically need to know that they can make money so that they can invest in doing this stuff. And so proving out the concept of operations is important because now Axiom can turn to space agencies in nations that don't have their own human spaceflight programs and say, we'll fly your astronauts, let's say from the UAE maybe, up to the ISS to do some research, to private corporations that might want to do very applied research that's tougher to get onto the publicly operated national lab of the ISS. Um, Television, films, you know, advertising, all of these things that NASA can't do, now Axiom is saying we have the capability to do it. And the question is, will there be a rush of demand for their services? And, and they're confident there will be. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned in the piece, you say that, you know, this this space tourism aspect of Axiom is is really low-hanging fruit. And, and really, it's looking at this kind of long-term um, utilization of of commercial space. Am I reading into that correctly? That that's what they're really focusing on is is the long term sustainability of this economy. Well, I, I don't know about the sustainability. I think sustainability is important to them. But what they are focused on is trying to operate their own free flying habitat and charging people money, charging companies money, charging NASA money, charging universities money to go up there and do stuff and come back down. Um, what Cam Gafarian, who's the chairman of the company, told me last fall was they see through about 2024, maybe 2025 now, they're going to get most of their revenue from private missions um, up to the ISS, from people paying them to go there. But after that, they hope to transition to a point where they're getting more money operating their own module on the ISS and then splitting it off. And if that succeeds, they're going to be basically landlords in space and anyone who wants to rent time on their station can come do it. Um, what Blue Origin has called it is a mixed use industrial park in space. And you have companies like Redwire or Space Tango that want to go up and use these platforms to do you know, advanced manufacturing and microgravity. Um, that's a business model that people are excited about. It hasn't been fully proved out yet. But that's something that could bring a lot of money in if they get it right. Mm -hmm. There is a deadline to all this, right? NASA says the ISS will, will be no more by, by 2030. Um, is this enough time for commercial companies like Axiom to, to start putting the groundwork in there and, and filling the gap that will surely be left when, when the ISS is decommissioned? That is the big question. Um, it had better be enough time from the position of NASA. Uh, we all saw what happened when the space shuttle was retired and the U.S. went a long period without having a human spaceflight program. Losing the ISS and not having other platforms in low Earth orbit would be the same sort of thing. We would have, you know, the Falcon 9 and all of these great vehicles to go up to low Earth orbit, but nothing to go to there. Um, so one interesting thing to think about is Axiom's strategy is to start with the ISS with its own module and then split off. But these other companies that I mentioned, like NanoRacks or Blue Origin, want to begin with just a free-flying orbiter of their own. And maybe that will be easier or faster. They won't have to worry about interfacing with the NASA station or NASA's requirements, and they'll be able to sort of do a very lean commercial station. Uh, so there's a couple different ways that people are approaching this problem. Um, but will it actually be able to host astronauts, you know, a week after the ISS is decommissioned? It's very hard to say at this point, and it depends probably on continuing investment from NASA and the private sector over the next five or six years. Mm -hmm. Tim, let, let's let's get to the topic of Elon Musk and Twitter. Um, as you mentioned in, in, in your newsletter, um, it does seem like business as usual for Elon. On the day he announced his buy, he was working 
on a new engine, um, the, the Raptor at his facility in Boca Chica, Texas. But as you reported, um, attention won't be the issue for Elon. Um, instead, of, it's going to be funding. Um, kind of un- unpack this for us. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so obviously, you know, Elon just uh, has has entered a deal to buy Twitter. And and one of the initial reactions, of course, is Elon is going to be distracted from Tesla, from SpaceX, from Neuralink, from the boring company. And then you start to think, oh, this is the guy who's already operating five companies. So <laughs> I don't know if distraction is going to be the concern. You know, he has shown uh, an ability to sort of empower teams and, and leaders um, for at least a little while and let them run on their own. So whatever the secret of Elon's management is, you know, that's one thing. But, you know, investors in SpaceX may be worried because this is going to be very financially stressful for Elon. Uh, and, and the context here is last fall, there was an email that was reported on in The Verge that Elon sent out to SpaceX employees where he said, you know, we really got to get the Raptor engine production sorted. We need to be flying Starship twice a week in 2022 if we want to avoid bankruptcy. Um, obviously, Starship is not going to fly twice a week in 2022, at least where we're sitting now, where we don't even have regulatory approval for a SpaceX launch. Um, so, you know, Elon is impulsive and he says things that, you know, maybe he just was really angry about the engines in that moment. But there's real financial stress on SpaceX right now. It's an investment mode. Right now, SpaceX is building out the Starlink satellite network. It's developing the Raptor and testing the Starship, its new heavy uh, lift launch vehicle. These are multi-billion dollar projects. And SpaceX, while it's well capitalized is going to need more money. And Elon said as much uh, on Twitter when talking about that bankruptcy email. So now we look at the sort of economic cycle we're in. This week, the Federal Reserve Board is meeting. They're going to hike interest rates. We're already seeing tech stocks falling quite a bit. Stock market in general is going to be probably readjusting over the next six months. And when SpaceX goes to raise capital, it's going to be a you know less friendly environment for that, despite all of the successes that SpaceX has had. And when investors are putting capital into SpaceX, they look at Elon Musk, one of the world's richest people, and say, you know, SpaceX is Elon's arguably favorite company. I would say it's his most, the most, the closest company to Elon's heart. If we put money in here, we know that Elon is going to make sure the company survives with his own money and his own resources, no matter what happens. Well, now Elon is financing $44 billion to purchase Twitter. And that has some ramifications. We've already seen Tesla's stock price falling because Elon is using that stock to finance his purchase. Now, he has plenty of money, but the stock continues to go down. He's going to be on the hook for a good chunk of about $13 billion of loans that he has taken against his Twitter holdings, or sorry, against his Tesla holdings. And Twitter itself is going to have to pay around a billion dollars every year of debt service. And what that means is that the next time that Elon wants to put money into SpaceX, he may have to make a choice between, you know, am I selling too much Tesla stock that I could potentially lose control of this company or cause investors to lose faith in it? Am I spending too much money keeping Twitter going? Do I need to keep it alive as a business because of my ego? And and this is not even getting into whether the decisions he makes about Twitter will cause it to become profitable or not. And then there's SpaceX. And so essentially, this is not so much a question of Elon's you know, time, it's a question of his money. And if financial conditions get worse, if Twitter turns out to be a continuing money loser and Tesla stock keeps going down, that could put SpaceX in a difficult position when it needs capital. 
Um, that's a that's a speculative scenario, but to me, that is the biggest concern for SpaceX investors and SpaceX employees. If you're thinking about the future of the company and, and what that Twitter purchase might mean for it, mm-hmm. it's a complex story and one of the many reasons I'm glad we have you <laughs> reporting on it. Uh, Tim Fernholtz covers space, the economy, and geopolitics for Quartz. He's the author of Rocket Billionaires, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and the New Space Race. Tim, thank you so much for your insight. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brendan. Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, just wherever you get your podcasts. Or do it the old-fashioned way. Visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE, America's space station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.